So I'm tempted to begin this sermon, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't give you much hope for a good sermon, does it? But it's not about the sermon itself, it's about what we're about to read. You see, unfortunately, I think we're about to read a narrative, and it's so familiar, even if you're not a Christian, even if uh, you are not in church very often, almost all of us around that Christmas season will hear about the birth narrative of Christ, and we hear it so much, and it's so domesticated, nice and tidied up as like a Christmas package, the little baby Jesus, that, that we sometimes miss the spectacular, extraordinary, unbelievable narrative that it is. It would be better if we were to look at it fresh and go, oh, come on, who are you kidding? Than it would be to enter into that kind of Christian blah, blah, blah. We recite creeds that talk about it. And it can become blah, blah, blah. And so as we go to this passage, I want us to pray that we would try for a moment to think about this as if it's the first time you've ever heard it. Notice carefully the words. Notice carefully what is being said. And to get you there, just keeping in mind that throughout the Bible, there are these great epoch-changing moments in divine history, in the divine redemptive history with Israel. And what's particularly interesting is that each of these great epoch-changing moments, they are broadcast as through this incredible and prodigious birth narrative. Today, in keeping then with many of the characteristics of these birth narratives past, Matthew's going to carefully document the greatest rollout of a birth ever. I mean, Ever. There is nothing in history, nothing that compares to what you're about to read. Nothing, nowhere. It is at once unbelievable, humanly speaking, as it then is believable, but only if we really get our heads around the reality that there is a personal God. A God who with a mere word can create all things whatsoever. A God who is a powerful, other reality entity, God. Only if you believe in God could you possibly read this story and not laugh in unbelief. I'm reminded especially if we could think about this for a bit of something that David Brooks uh, wrote in this tragic situation uh, essay of his. Just a part of it, he says, a tragic situation means you are trying to pursue some large, great project, but you are caught in a circumstance that imposes awful necessities. And so, I'm hoping and praying that you will engage the narrative of Christ's birth 
and keeping in mind the unbelievability of it from a cosmological point of view, also consider the pathos of it. The fact that there's something really difficult happening here. I mean, what would it mean for God Almighty to deal with a problem so great that it would mean he would have to empty himself of his power, of his glory, of his rightful claim to be praised, and that he would contain his deity into a mortal flesh, even a baby. How awful is that? What kinds of compromises had to be made? Consider this event fresh. And I hope we can try to get our heads around it. So with that, let's begin in prayer. God, we come to a passage that, frankly, if we are honest, is really unbelievable. And we come to a reality that there's something going on so great, so pathological. Not even just the problem of sin, but the problem of your being and how your being can possibly be contained to a human manifestation. Lord, help us. Even if even if barely, to get a glimpse of the glory of the incarnation, yea, even the humility of it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we just concluded last week, and if you weren't here, that's fine. You won't have to be, but, but it was a great genealogy. You remember that the passage, this passage wants to sort of pick up on some of those main themes, and in a very brilliant way, just brilliant way, Matthew puts together a set of three 14s each of names that contain a representative, not full, but a representative genealogy of Christ. In these three sets, he brilliantly writes a theology, not a genealogy. It begins with a theology of a great promise for a kingdom that was given to Abraham. A kingdom that would transgress all sectarian boundaries and ethnic realities. This is not a kingdom of this world that is promised during that particular era of the patriarchal genealogy. It is not a sectarian kingdom. It is not a politicized kingdom if you mean a kingdom of Rome versus a kingdom of Babylon versus a kingdom of Assyria or today America, etc. It is a great and worldwide all nations kingdom. The second theology is that we discern that there is this requirement, there's, there's something to make this happen. Not only must this king transcend temporal limitations, not only is this king needing to be equipped with super nature qualities that would transcend what mere temporal powers and resources could possibly do. 
This is a, not a kingdom of an economic system. This is not a kingdom of a political theory. We discern how this must be a great, I mean, in the genre of superhero kind of, of savior king or the word Messiah. And then thirdly, we found that this incredible savior king would somehow submit himself to his own history, a history born of sin. That somehow there is a tragedy that's, that's so great that he must somehow be both and at once a superhero, but who would bear the weight and conquer the power of evil. For we all know, we know it in our heart, the real oppressor is not another human. It's not another nation state. It's not a economic system A versus system B. If we all were honest, I don't care what system, I don't care what political regime, I don't care what human being, there's something that is true about all of them. It's a red herring from a redemptive historical point of view for us to get so bent out of shape about some kind of messianic vision for yet another political regime or yet another economic system or yet another intellectual discovery. Because there's a problem so deep that required this superhero kind of messianic savior king to suffer and to conquer that cardinal problem, that problem that begets all problems, that issue that begets all issues that confront our flourishing. And that problem, of course, is evil. It's evil. There is evil in the world. Anti-God in the world. That anti-God manifests itself in what we call sin. That's what sets us up now for this birth narrative of this long-awaited, messianic, in proportions, superhero, savior king. And so now we have this question, how is it that Christ satisfies these expectations? I mean, he's already set us up for failure just with a genealogy. And the answer, of course, is going to be given to us through a birth narrative. A birth narrative carefully recognized that will, for the rest of Matthew, will inform why he gives us the details of Christ's life that he will give. Matthew is going to make a statement here, and the rest of his gospel will be trying to evidence it by the works that Christ does, by the things that he does, so that we can believe, really believe, that the, capital T-H-E, answer to the world's problems, such a grandiose statement like that, is none other than this one and only messianic king, Jesus Christ. And so let's start. Again, with the great epic moments which announced by the Bible and birth narratives you heard us read the story of Sam, Samson as one of many examples. We have others, Moses, etc. But this is a good example because it's written so clearly in the genre of the super birth narrative. 
we see the familiar, what we call the S-sackle there. Sin, you know, servitude, supplication, salvation. It's the cycle that repeats itself in our own personal lives, no less than redemptive history. A people who sin, they, they reject God. The evil enters through that portal. The evil which will then oppress us or put us in bondage and in servitude. An evil that will eventually wear us down where we'll cry out, oh God, have mercy and supplication. And then an evil that only can be conquered by a great savior figure. And that's what we see exactly in Judges in chapter 13. How the people of Israel again, this is after four cycles, I think, of this same pattern, again did what was evil, the word there, in the sight of God. And he gave them over to the Philistines. It's the exact same beginning every time. Same results, delivered over to bondage. Same exact solution, raise up a savior. Samson in the Hebrew means Jesus. Or in English, savior. That's what it means. And so we hear this birth narrative of Samson. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have no born children. Thus you shall conceive and bear a son. Does this sound familiar to you? It should. You've heard it many times in the Old Testament. And here we have it again. The theme of barrenness, Sarah and Rebecca, and on it goes. The angelic announcement. It's literally the exact Hebrew phrase used with Moses at the burning bush, and the angel of the Lord appeared. It's the same phrase that's used in Matthew regarding Joseph and the angel to him. But as the king considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared. Barrenness, a virgin, Mary, without child. An angelic announcement to Joseph, the legal father, if not the natural father of Christ. An expectation in Samson, and he shall begin, and he shall save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Sound familiar? In our passage, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? The name means, for he shall save the people from their sins. Philistines, evil, equals now the real thing that all the other things meant to foreshow, and that is its sin. And then we see the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Samson and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manoah Dan and between Zorah and Eshoth. Later it describes how he, the Lord Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon him. This happens every one of the judges. It happens throughout the Old Testament. There's an anointing that sets this person apart from ordinary leaders. Now, of course, this is only penultimate because it sounds familiar, but it goes a little farther this time, doesn't it? This anointing is now 
may I use the word ontological, inherent by nature. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, we're told. And then 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a, a, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now think about what's happening here. Two times the passage will explain that she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That this, this child, this egg, this embryo, it's natural, other, fraternal side is the Holy Spirit. I mean, do you believe that? Really? Well, it's a familiar theme, even if it's now gone a thousand times deeper. This then brings us to two simple questions. What kind of person could fulfill this great expectation? And what exactly is his purpose in coming? And in this, we will discover, we'll try to get our heads around it at the end of the sermon and say, okay, let's get our heads around this a little bit. But let me take you briefly through the passage. Note in the ancient Near East, names were significant. They weren't just what sounds good, but they always were significant most often describing a purpose of life. You think of Genesis 3, the name, the man was named his wife Eve. And then there's the because clause, because she is the mother of life. Eve means living. Genesis 25, the first came out red, and all his body like a hairy mantle, and so they named his name Esau, which deals with this scarlet color. And his purpose in life. Simon to Peter related to his purpose in life from a shaking reed to one who is a foundation, has a foundational work in the kingdom of God, later to hear that it's the apostolic foundation for the church of Jesus Christ. That's the nature of this passage. The names prophetically given to Christ here in this passage, there are two of them, and they correspond very nicely to their two parents. The first one, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And behold, the virgin, the second one, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Briefly then, reviewing this kind of parent-name relationship, which is very important in this passage. So the mother, of course, the natural mother, is Mary, the virgin. It goes to great pains, this passage, to emphasize that Mary was a virgin. Two times before they lived together, look, the virgin who conceives and bears a son, three, and had no marital relations with her. Speaking of Joseph, three times, making sure you get it. It's not backing off, man. This is not just, you know, rhetoric or hyperbole or poetic license. It's extremely careful to be extremely focused that this birth is of a Virgin Mary 
without a father, human father seed, or fertilizer, I guess you could say. This is important. The natural father was none other, of course, than God, the Holy Spirit, stated two times. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, verse 18. For the child conceived in her is born from the Holy Spirit, verse 20. That's the mother's side. The legal side, he is described as the son of Jesus. Of course, I mean of Joseph. That is, of course, traced in the genealogy as to the royal line of David, King David. David, of course, being the greatest of all Savior King images in the Bible. Joseph, the son of David, it even is explicit in our passage. It wants to make sure you know that that's the connection here when the Holy Spirit comes to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife. Again, the significance of David cannot be overstated. Songs were written about David, great songs. One of those were almost in a mocking way. It read like this in 1 Samuel 21. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another about him in dances? Quote, Saul has struck down the thousands, David his ten thousands. Ten thousands is throughout the Old Testament used in a symbolic, if not also, it's kind of like the tithe in the Old Testament, of a completeness, of a totalness. Dave, Saul, these other kings, they could only do partially what we're expecting. But David, he is thought of as this great Messiah king like almost a superhero. It's, it's hard to imagine someone so sensitive, someone so, so introspective as we see in the Psalms, someone who had such eros for God and, and agape for humanity, how this King David could be so terrifying. I mean, this was a warrior like no other warrior. Defeating as a young Man, if, if not even an adolescence, the greatest warrior that was said to have ever lived in the great warrior Goliath. You have to understand that, that this passage packs this in. That is why, of course, the promise is given that David's throne will endure forever and ever and ever. And now we have a passage that wants to link us to this great line. The lineage of King David made explicit. Unlike Luke, for instance. And by the way, when you study the Gospels, you know, we, we, you know, in this modern era where we're trying to defend whether the Scriptures are authentic or whether they're inerrant, we got off on all these philosophical questions. We totally miss it. Gospels are not written for a post-enlightenment philosophical cynicism. The Gospels are written to tell a story that is theologically driven. And so when you see a difference between one gospel and the other, that's great. That's telling you what, what is Matthew's particular theological focus in the way that he's writing the story. And this is what one thing we see. Unlike Luke's gospel, who also, as you know, uh, or may know, gives quite a thorough uh, birth narrative, 
Matthew wants to establish the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to be of the throne of David, linking him to those great messianic expectations about this incredible, terrifying, yet awesome Savior King. From Joseph's standpoint, in showing that Joseph then adopted Jesus into a royal line. It's important to note that in the Jewish uh, society of that day, legal status was granted by the father's line. Even if the, mater- if the family genealogy would be traced through the maternal line. And so verse 18 makes it very clear that Joseph is to marry Mary. <laughs> and therefore become the adopted father of this one born of the Holy Spirit. Betrothal, also in Jewish culture and society at that time, was as binding as marriage is today, such that only a formal divorce could break a betrothal. The point then, without genetic lineage, Jesus was legally a member of David's line. Joseph is noted, by the way, you know, you can read the passage, and, and sometimes in, in modern depictions, it describes Joseph. I saw some movie, I don't know whether it's Jesus Christ Superstar or something, but, but it, Joseph was kind of cynical, and he was sort of troubled, and, and all of this stuff. But if you look carefully at the passage, he's really presented as an incredibly righteous and godly man. He's noted as such in verse 19 as a righteous man. Joseph is a compassionate man, unwilling to expose his wife to believe in this incredible, unbelievable proclamation that was given to him by an angel. In order not to pull Mary to shame, he was unwilling to divorce her. They were betrothed, but he could have divorced her if she had committed adultery. But he believed her and the angel. Again, it's important to note that. Joseph is a a submissive person in verse 20. And he did just as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He's an obedient person in verse 24. These are the kind of attributes, righteousness, compassion, submission, that, of course, would characterize David. And also, of course, his son after him. These are, there's an especially messianic theme here and how it is that, again, David's kingdom in 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, Psalms 89, all over the place, is meant to be established forever. And here we have the narrative that's linking all of that to the birth of this son. So we've looked at the, the parents, now the names that correspond to their parent, his parents and the implications of that. He's born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, Therefore, two times it's stated by the Holy Spirit, and then it's stated at conclusion, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is who Christ is, his person. Who is the Christ? Fantastic. Crazy. God with us. God with us. And of course, we discern even by this genealogy, by with us, it doesn't mean just God in a flame, like a flaming bush with us. It means God with us, (laughs) in us somehow, in solidarity with us at the deepest level. I mean, this God who 
who was with us in ages past through, again, burning bushes and great flames such that you couldn't even behold him. He would disguise his glory behind the clouds, the Shekinah glory of the clouds. This glory of God that was with Israel through the wilderness that was in this Shekinah glory cloud that would descend upon the temple that would meet with Moses on the top of the mountain such that you could not even look at him directly. This God is now with us, walking with us, learning how to get milk from his mother, learning how to eat, going to the bathroom, getting sick, learning trades, having to work, as a carpenter. Sometimes I think we just can't get our head around that. This isn't cute baby Jesus, some kind of an angel sitting in a, in a, in a, in a, a, a you know, a, a manger. This is a kid. <laughs> this is a young boy going through life. It's incredible. It's incredible. God with us. Get your head around that. It's unbelievable. Nothing like this has ever happened in the history of all the Bible. And then, of course, the son of Joseph, the royal line of David, his name becomes Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior King. The significance, of course, being that that this salvation is explicitly stated to be a salvation concerning sin or evil. Thus the line of David that is taken, that is hearkened back to Judah in the genealogy. Remember Judah, born into sin, is Christ, born into the sin of the very humanity that he inhabits. I mean, if you're listening to me, I... I wonder, some of you are going, maybe I need to give this Christianity a second thought. And I'm a little bit scared, honestly, that it's going the other way. And maybe that's not a bad thing. God's big, I can say that. I don't want you to go the other way. But God, if this is God, and if this is his scripture, is telling you something that is absolutely cataclysmically out of your mind. Get your head around it. Christ is the son of Mary and the son of God. Christ is the son of Joseph and the son of David. Christ is God with us to do what only a great divine Savior King can do, and that is to save us not from the manifestations of evil only, but from evil itself at the very core. And Christ, who is God with us, has come to fulfill this great and royal mission to set us free from an oppressor that no temporal regime can touch not even close. Okay. What in the world am I going to do with that? <laughs> Three things to try to get your head around it. 
First of all, what is Christ by nature? Let's just think about it. Let's meditate on it. Let's just reflect. And to help us to do that, this is not like a new reflection, right? I mean, this has been going on throughout the 2,000 years of history. This idea that someone came, and remember, his life is going to vindicate it. So much so that, that before the resurrection, still their followers were questioning. After the resurrection, they all but one died. Died. To be able to say, he is Lord, Yahweh. They died to say that. I mean, if Matthew's history is myth and fabrication, why the mass killings of the Christians, Christians who would die for it, Christians who lived in the very history of Jesus' life, who walked with him and saw him, they surely would have seen, oh, come on, this guy's just a bunch of smoke. Surely they would know when their lives were at the end, okay, this political cause of mine's gotten a little too costly. Surely they would know that. Surely we'd know that those great miracles that are described in Matthew, things like, things that would terrify the disciples, like the time when he calmed the sea. The sea obeyed Jesus in a little boat. Boom, stopped. A hurricane. And they were more afraid of Jesus than they were the hurricane after that. Now, if that was a myth story, okay, maybe. It's good for rhetoric. We hear all that today in the political process, right? Myths everywhere. But now they're asked to die for it. And they don't only die. They request to die an ignoble and humiliating death, not to dare to die like their Lord did on a cross, Many, therefore, would hung upside down to say, I'm not fit to die his death. He's the real deal. This reality that Christ by nature is both God and human, stated two times. Listen to something you're familiar with, the Nicene Creed. How it is that they're, these Christians trying to get their head around it, try to get their head around it from a natural point, of view, natural point of view. He is one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. No way you can read that and think, uh, there's room for, for shadow here. This is even clarified more in the Chalcedonian Creed in 451 AD. They come up with the word homoousios. The same one in being, homo, sousios. The same one in his very being. This is not Jesus, a man. This is not God sort of uh, manifesting himself in a mediatorial way and through a man. This is not just a man who represented God, though he did. This is God. By nature, God. His very being, God. And this is how it's being described it goes to great lengths, though, to make sure that 
This God is also fully and perfectly human. They come up with a phrase that we know now through history, distinct, but never and impossibly separate to get around this reality. Two distinct natures, always and impossibly never separate. Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, in, in unconfused, I'm sorry, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinctions of the natures being by no means taken away by the union of the natures, but rather the property of such natures being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. I mean, if you're following that, I mean, these are great words and you need to slow down, but do you hear what I'm trying to convey? That as the church of Jesus Christ wrestled and tried to get their head around that, the result was not to compromise it, to bear, but rather to bear down upon it. It was not to soften it up so it could be a little more palatable to the skeptics of the world. It was to nail it right in our face. And I could go on. This first point of reflection, if we believe this, the mere uniqueness of Jesus Christ begs for a unique devotion to him. There is no other salvation available because there's no other person fit the work. It's his nature that equips him for the work of the salvation event that required none other than a supernatural reality. Forever, this is a great theological point, but the person and the work always go together. So goes person, so goes work or vocation. Well, that brings us to the second point. Not only does this mean that we have to insist that Christ Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the light, wherein we can truly be saved from evil. Secondly, what is it then? How does he do this? What is his vocation? Well, because of his nature, the scripture then will tie that to his role, his purpose as a mediator. A mediator that would manifest itself as a, both a prophet and a priest and a king, but by nature, one who could both and at the same time represent in this legal transaction, but also in this nature transaction, could represent both God and humanity. We see this especially in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God... And there is also one mediator between God and people, Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested to at the right time. And so we see how it is that, that the Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to his divine nature, God and people, Christ Jesus himself, and therefore, again, I'm quoting from our own confession of faith, how it is that he, in order that he might thoroughly furnish to execute the office of a mediator. 
and surety for us. This becomes one of the great get-your-head-around-it moments for the Church of Jesus Christ historically. How blessed it is that our Savior is in solidarity with us. How blessed it is that our Savior can truly empathize with us who suffered under sin, who understands us, who can bring our cause to his Father as one who is us bringing it. We see that in Hebrews, how he makes even now intercession for us. When we pray, we pray not in the Holy Spirit's name. We don't even pray in the Father's name. We pray who? In Christ's name. Why? Because we need a mediator to go to God. Someone who we trust, we trust to know what we need. And yet also someone who has the Father's ear. You see, in the scripture, we see this kind of, this paradigm where where the Father decrees the Son mediates and, execu- and mediates, and the, and the Holy Spirit executes. All one God, three persons. I know. Blows your brain again. These things to me, I mean, I've said this many times in the pulpit, but these things have this beautiful adverse effect in my life. I'll start with the adverse. Adverse is... I'm not, it's not so, not often, I can't put it together real quick, that I don't really kind of go to a crisis of do I believe God? And I don't mean it, I mean, it's, it's thankfully because of, you know, learning and training, I can work myself through it. But it's, a, it's in, which is, you know, this is a pitch, but I just can't tell you how important it is. If you're going to take Christianity seriously, how much we need to study this and understand this and think about how do you walk your through out of that crisis? When you start suffering because of your Christianity, which you're going to, especially if you're young, it's coming. When it starts getting real, I wonder how many will all fall away. How important it is that you really learn and think and turn on your brain. People come here and they say, well, it's a little later. Man, When you go back to the early church, the reason these folks were willing to stay true in the midst of sufferings is because they had been catechized for years, years, on how they understand these truths, getting their head around it. And here in this context especially, the mediator, how it is that Christ, we pray in his name, without his name, we would have no seating with God. He is God's beloved son. Never forget it. He is the beloved one. He is the apple of the eye. He's the one that God listens to because he alone has been a faithful son. And when he comes, the faithful son, and says, hey, God, Billy Bob over there, he's good. He's good because I died for him. Here's my blood. I offer my blood to you my sacrifice, my life, so that Preston can be good. So, God, my Father, I want you to hear his prayers. Now, I'm, I'm, Father, I, 
you know, when Preston prays down there, he, he's, he, he, he kind of gets it wrong. He, he's searching for flourishing. He's searching for intimacy. He's searching for life abundant. You know, he thinks getting this and getting that's going to do it. We all know that's not going to happen. We see the future. So God, grant him his request. Say yes to flourishing. And yes, sometimes the yes results in what I think is a no. But already, having lived a little bit of life, I'm beginning to see a pattern that what I thought was no became yes later. What I thought was no here, 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 here. And I literally have things in my life that I could tell you about. No, family, no, this, no, this. Wow, they're all yeses now. Yes to human flourishing. Yes to purposeful life. Yes to meaning and, and, and yes to training and all sorts of things that, that God has said yes to my prayer, underneath my prayer, but that's what this is about. We would not have access to the Father because if we were evil. We rejected him, and we do so every time we do a particular sin. Underneath it is the cardinal sin of, of what? The original sin of rejecting God. There's a just God up there that has to be dealt with, a righteous God, a holy God. And Jesus, and only Jesus, in his divinity could satisfy God's holiness and justice and righteousness and goodness and all of that. And only Jesus, as a human, could therefore bring to us the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Without his humanness, we would not have grace. Without his divineness, God would not have his righteousness. Jesus Christ, the only mediator because he's both God and human. It's huge. It's huge. The person corresponds to the work. But I want to leave you with this final thought. What does it mean to us relationally? This love. There's a word, there's a description of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. I won't go through it. He's talked about how we're to love one another, not looking to our own interest, etc. But then he says this. Why would we do that? Why would we love one another? Well, you would love one another because and in a manner in which Christ loved us. And here's what he says. Because he says, who though he was in the form of God, that is, he is God, Don't, I'd have to go back to get that Greek word for you, but just trust me. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he emptied himself of something. He emptied himself of what? It goes on to say, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now this set in motion a 2,000 years of exegetical debate that you can read about in the history books. What does it mean? Sadly, all too often, like is all too often characteristic, each age will want to import upon this text their own lens, their own ages question. Today, of course, post-enlightenment, we want to post it as a philosophical thing. How is it that Christ, it's called the kenosis theory, the word empty is kenosis, and it's how is it that Christ could both be God and divine, and, and that's a great mystical question that we just talked about with Chalcedon, but that's not what's talking about here. We need to read the scripture in its own context, and here it's very clearly in the context of understanding the nature of love. It's understood in the context of what would it mean for a great king God to love someone, his infinite 
inferior as a human being. That's the tragedy and the tragic problem that I think I wanted us to think about with Brooks's thought. A tragic situation means you are trying to pursue some large good project, but you are caught in a circumstance that imposes awful necessities. I gave to you a, a snippet of a, uh, a piece by uh, Soren Kierkegaard. And in that piece on the maiden, the Christ, the king, you know, and his love for a maiden, a servant maiden, as meant to be an illustration story of this idea of, of kenosis or, or, or this whole idea of, of emptying himself. And it goes like this in, in the shortened version. Again, I'm, I'm highlighting, shortening it. It really is more powerful when you read it. But here it is. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a very poor village in his kingdom. What's the tragedy? How could he declare his love to her? That's the tragedy. How could he do that? How could it do it in a manner that she could hear it? In one odd sort of way, his kindness tied his hands. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover. And so the king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her, freedom, resolved to descend to her. And it goes on to describe how this great, mighty, and almighty king truly and really put aside his power. He put aside his power. He put aside his glory. He came as a humble man into the village, like her, wherein they were able to fall in love as, quote, equals, if you will. This is what Paul is talking about. The take-home is you can actually love God. Not the kind of love that is fake love. You know, the kind of love that out of fear, you're cringing. Well, what else am I going to say? Sure, I'll marry you. I mean, you're the king of kings and lord of lords. If I don't, I'm not getting on your bad side. No. This God who from Genesis to Revelation has portrayed himself as the husband of Israel wants a relationship with you. And it's a relationship that he wants to, to be determined as by love. He doesn't tie your brain. We believe in free will. You, you hear it all the time, Presbyterians don't know, oh, that's bull. We have a whole chapter on free will in our confession of faith. We don't even have a chapter on predestination, though it's there. We believe in this mystery of the sovereignty of God. A sovereignty of God that de de decrees all things whatsoever that happens, and yet in a, in a first cause sense, God is the cause, but in a secondary cause relative to our temporal being, we have choices. God comes into our temporal reality where we have choices to love and not to love. And God humbled himself by becoming a human. He came to us, the maiden servant. And he let us love him. Not out of fear. Perfect love cast out fear. But because he first loved us. And so if all of this mystery is blowing your brain, 
and it ought to. It all comes together in love. It's all meant to be about love. The great song of songs, the song of Solomon, is a story of of a man and a woman falling in love. It's erotic, and it is agape. It is a covenantal love with passion all over it. And that's the way you need to think about what it means to be a Christian. God of God, humanity of humanity, God our mediator, satisfying all the conditions necessary to set us free from our sin and misery, now says, I love you. And I love you so much that I emptied myself to the point of dying on a cross, the most humiliating death you could have possibly had 2,000 years ago, with nails in his hands and feet. I mean, just get your head around this. Now, it's going to make you go back to that first question, do I really believe in God? But if you do, if you can get it from the nature that, you know, I can't possibly, it's, it's such a great leap to think that the beauty of humanity could come from fickle chance or, or natural causes. No, there's so much evidence that there's something personal that's, e- that's eternal that it is powerful. And if you can go through the scripture and begin to understand the nature of some of these great antinomies and these great mysteries, because they are there and there's answers for you. I really mean that. But if you can get to the place where you can say, I believe in a person God. Wrap your head around that the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, gave us a Savior, God with us. Amen.